Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Good morning, everybody. Can't turn with your Bibles to John chapter 19 and stand when you get that, please. John chapter 19. Bible says, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. They began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you, and I have the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me, unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has a greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you do release this man, you are no friend of Caesar, who makes him, or anyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Father, we pray that you would bless your word today. Anoint these lips of clay. Let your word go out and find fertile hearts that you may change our lives. As we are starting a new year, let us begin anew with you also. Let let this year be the best year of our Christian lives, the most productive. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, guys. You may be seated. In his commentary on John, Harry Ironside tells of a meeting at a church in Scotland many years ago. One minister was invited to preach the sermon on a particular Sunday morning, and he gave a marvelous oration on the beauty of virtue. He concluded, Oh, my friends, if virtue incarnate could only appear on earth, men would be so ravished with her beauty that they would fall down and worship her. Many went out of that meeting saying, what a magnificent sermon that was. That same evening, though, another man preached. He did not preach about virtue and beauty. He preached Christ and him crucified. As he closed his sermon, he said, my friends, virtue incarnate has appeared on the earth. And men, instead of being ravished with his beauty and falling down and worshiping him, cried out, away with him crucify him. We will not have this man to rule over us. That second man was right. The truth is the natural man hates God's holiness and will do anything 
rather than to allow the light of Christ to penetrate his deep personal darkness. Welcome back to our study in the Gospel of John. The 18th and 19th chapters of John's Gospel deals with the trials of Jesus, beginning with his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane and culminating in his crucifixion. Each event is pregnant with meaning, for never in the entire history of the world has so much done in so short a time been so significant. Look at verse 1 with me. So Pilate then took Jesus and had him flogged. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and placed it on his head and put a purple cloak on him. And they repeatedly came up to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and slapped him in the face again and again. Never at a loss for an idea, Pilate decided to try a new approach, that being sympathy. The crowd had shouted out, crucify him, but perhaps they would be placated if Jesus was just scourged. Pilate's thought was, what person could behold a scourged prisoner and still want that person crucified? Desperate to find a solution and reluctant to release Barabbas, Pilate hoped to satisfy the mob's bloodlust by sentencing Jesus to what was known as the halfway death. But by brutally punishing a man whom he had already declared innocent, Pilate plunged further down into the abyss of injustice. John's simple statement, Pilate took him and had him scourged, is shockingly plain. And we have heard this account so often, and we know it so well, that it can lose its punch. What I mean is we know that Jesus was beaten. We know he was marred and disfigured more than any man and eventually nailed to a tree. But I think it would do us good to sometimes to take the time to consider what Jesus willingly went through. For you see, we were on his mind. We were on his heart when he took those blows, felt that pain, and endured unspeakable suffering. It was all for me. It was all for you. The Roman, the Roman scourging was so brutal and vicious that although it was not meant to kill the victim, it sometimes did. John Mattingly writes about the Roman scourging. He says, the judge criminal was usually first forcefully stripped of his clothes and then tied to a post or pillar in the tribunal. Then the awful and cruel scourging was administered by men called lictors. The Hebrews limited by their law the number of strokes of scourging to 40. The Romans, however, were not bound by any such restrictions. The punishment would continue until the torturers were either exhausted, the commanding officer decided it should stop, or it was sometimes the case, the victim just died. You see, the Roman cat nine tails called the flagrum was made of long strips of leather tied to a wooden handle. And the strips of leather had pieces of bone and metal tied into them, which, which would rip into the back of the victim time after time. By the way, we get the phrase, he took a licking from the beating that the lictor would give. According to one forensic pathologist, the scourging typically resulted in rib fractures 
and lacerations was bleeding into the chest cavity, which often caused a partial or complete collapse of the lungs. And because that kind of scourging could potentially send the victim into shock in less than five minutes, the soldiers would turn the event into a spectacle by taking delight in humiliating the victim. Three or four lashes would then be followed by taunting. Then as the victim recovered, they would give him more lashes. They continued to do this and the victim could bear no more without dying. Suffice it to say, scourging was terrible. Many died from it and many others just went mad. Ancient authorities as diverse as Eusebius, Josephus, and Cicero relate that scourging normally meant a flaying to the bone. Eusebius tells the martyrs who were torn by scourges down to the deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents and recesses of their bodies, their entrails, and sometimes even their organs were exposed to sight. We're also told in the other gospels they repeatedly spit in his face. In fact, we get the word empty from the Greek word emptuo, which means to spit. That means they emptied their saliva into the face of Jesus, showing their extreme revulsion. Their spittle gave vent to their spite. They would then put a hood on the prisoner and hit him from all different sides. This is all just the beginning of what will culminate on Calvary. They also put, mockingly put a crown of thorns on his head, which in a way was appropriate. Now, why would I say that? Because sin had brought thorns and thistles into the world, so it was only fitting that the Creator wear a crown of thorns as he bore the sins of the world on the cross. When the lictor finally completed his gruesome task, he then draped a royal cloak over Jesus, tattered swollen flesh, and sent him back to Pilate wearing a crown of thorns in mockery of his alleged kingship. I love one commentator's take on this. He writes, In this, even the mockery visited on Christ, the burlesque crown and the robe acquires a kind of ironic opulence in the light cast backward upon the scene by the empty tomb. It becomes all at once clear that it is not Christ's ambitions which are laughable, but those emblems of earthly authority whose travesties have been draped over his shoulders and pressed into his scalp. We can now see with perfect poignancy the vanity of empires and kingdoms and the absurdity of men who wrap themselves in rags and adorn themselves with glittering trinkets and promote themselves with preposterous titles and thereby claim license to rule over others. And yet the figure of Christ seems only to grow in dignity. The very fact that Jesus, the God-man, was having to endure any of this is really just outrageous. You'll find no other figurehead in any other religion allowing this to happen to them. John Dixon once spoke on the theme of the wounds of God in a universe, at a university campus in Sydney, Australia. During the question time, a Muslim man rose to explain how preposterous was the claim that the creator of the universe should should be subjected to the forces of his own creation, that he, he would have to eat and sleep and go to the toilet, let alone die on a cross. Dixon said his remarks were intelligent, 
clear, and civil. The man went on to argue that it was illogical that God, the cause of all causes, could have pain inflicted upon him by any lesser being. Well, Dixon thought for a minute, but he couldn't come up with a knockdown argument or a witty comeback. So finally, he just thanked the man for making the uniqueness of the Christian claim so clear. Then Dixon concluded, What the Muslim denounces as blasphemy, the Christian holds precious. Our God has wounds. Certainly, this was all confusing to Pilate. Look at verse 4 with me. And then Pilate came out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you to show you that you will know that I find no grounds at all for charges in his case. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. For the third time, Pilate went out to face the people, this time bringing Jesus with him. Surely, the sight of this humiliated and scourged prisoner would arouse some type of pity in their hearts. But it did not. Then Pilate utters his famous introduction, Ecce Homo, or Behold the Man. It was asked on an earlier occasion when Jesus had stilled the wind and the waves on the Sea of Galilee, what manner of man is this? We may well ask the same question as we see him brought before Pilate after the merciless scourging of the soldiers of Rome. Here was one, though he had been beaten unjustly, nevertheless bore himself with such dignity that the invitation for Pilate to behold the man it's to see what should clearly just overwhelm us this morning. We hear the invitation, Ecce Homo. And when we look, we can only conclude, never in all of history has there ever been a man like this one man, Jesus. First of all, he's an innocent man. No crime has been proven against him. And not only has he been pronounced innocent by Pilate, but he has also been pronounced innocent several times more. It was the verdict of all who had dealings with him in these hours. Let me give us a quick rundown. First, Judas declared, I have betrayed innocent blood. Second, Pilate's wife sent to the Roman procurator saying, don't have anything to do with this innocent man for I have suffered a great deal in a dream because of him third Pilate himself declared Christ innocent when he said I find no basis for any charge against him fourth Herod found Christ blameless for Pilate reported of Herod's verdict neither did Herod for he sent him back to us as you can see he has done nothing to deserve death fifth the dying thief admitted, we are getting punished justly for what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Sixth, the centurion in charge of the crucifixion said, surely this was a righteous man. And lastly, the crowds at the cross, seeing the earthquake and the other supernatural signs accompanying his death, exclaimed, surely this was the Son of God. This is the verdict of all who have looked at Jesus of Nazareth closely. 
It is the verdict of both God and man, friend and foe, ancient and modern. One author writes, How long may it be before we hear the sound of another ecce homo? But if then we lift up our eyes, a different form will present itself to our view than that which we saw in Calvary. The king of glory will then have exchanged a robe of mockery for the starry mantle of divine majesty, the wreath of thorns for a crown of glory, and the wreath for the scepter of universal dominion. Look at verse 6 with me. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they shouted, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no ground for charges in this case. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate now once again puts the ball back into their course by telling them to take Jesus to crucify him. And once again, they just volley back the responsibility right back to Pilate. Now, it is weird that some cults, such as Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, say that Jesus never claimed deity. Take them to verse 7 and say, well, I can tell you one thing. The Jewish leaders absolutely understood very clearly his claim to deity. That is precisely why they killed him. Verse 8 says this has already shooken up and already shaken Pilate even more. By now, Pilate was terrified. First, he had encountered Christ's regal demeanor and the reality of his innocence. Then he witnessed his scourging and perhaps realized his own guilt in that. And now he is face to face with the nature of Jesus' offense. Now it is Pilate who was dizzy and confused. Or dazed and confused for you Led Zeppelin fans. So he pulled Jesus back in the recess of the praetorium for another chat. Pilate thought that Jesus actually might be more than a man. Perhaps one of the half-human, half-divine gods of Greek and Roman antiquity. The thought that Jesus might be a man with divine powers or perhaps a god or a son of a god in human form filled him with fear. Because if that were the case, he had just scourged and beaten someone who might use his supernatural powers to take vengeance on Pilate. Now in verse 9 there, his question had nothing to do with Jesus' earthly residence as Pilate already knew that he was a Galilean. The governor's question there concerned Jesus' nature. Was he from earth or was he from the realm of the gods? In this intimate conversation, it will become apparent that only one free man was in the room that day, and it was the suffering Savior. Verse 10, please. So Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all if it had not been given to you from above. For this reason, the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. There are a lot of things in this text that we could spend some time on. Notice, for the example, at the end it says something very inter interesting where Pilate says, 
I have power to crucify you. And Jesus says, the only power you have is given to you because it's all part of a greater plan. Jesus is like, yeah, I am going to get crucified. You may think it's your idea, but actually it's part of God's plan. He's the one who has given you the power to do this. He then says, therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guiltier than you are. In Jesus' final statement to Pilate, he pronounced a grave judgment on the one who handed me over to you. That he could have been Satan, Judas, Annas, or Caiaphas, as each played a key role in trying to destroy Jesus. Well-read Christians have differing opinions on who that could have been. We can't be dogmatic about it, and so we won't be in this case. But you know what that is saying. On the one hand, it's saying everything is under God's control. Everything is happening to a plan. And so if I do something, it is because God had it in his plan. For example, he's saying Pilate is not as deliberate in his hostility to Jesus as some of the other religious leaders were. What he's saying is religious leaders who are more deliberate and more intentional and more hostile are going to be guiltier than you are, but you're going to be guilty too. Here we have what the Bible is saying over and over again, and that is that God is completely in control all of the time, and yet at the same time, each one of us is responsible for his or her behavior. Everything that happens, every choice we make is part of his plan, and yet we are responsible for those choices. We talked about this concerning Judas a few weeks ago. As an aside, it intrigues me that Judas hung himself on a tree. Deuteronomy 19.16 says, If a man bears false witness and someone suffers because of that lie, the false witness must share the same fate as the one about whom he had lied. As D.A. Carson notes, Pilate remains responsible for his spineless, politically motivated judicial decision, but he did not initiate the trial or engineer the betrayal that brought Jesus into court. It's all well and good. But what about us? What do we say? Is he the son of God? I can give you my testimony. I look within my heart and I can confess to you that there was nothing within me to draw me to him. Left to myself, I would have found a lifetime of other pursuits to keep me busy. I could have been as skeptical as Thomas or as hostile as the Apostle Paul before his conversion. But Jesus spoke to me through the word of God declaring who he is and what he had done. My heart was smitten and I can confess that he is indeed the son of God and my savior. Is that your testimony? You know the evidence. Will you decide in favor of his claims or will you decide against him? There is no middle ground. 
And the strange thing about this case is that the decision you make will not determine, as it did here, the destiny of the defendant. It will determine the destiny of yourself. And like Pilate this morning, you are the judge. Verse 12. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews shouted, saying, If you release this man, you are not a friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was a day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Look, your king. So they shouted, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king except Caesar. This was the last straw for Pilate. The Jews' implied threat there finally was what it took to overwhelm him. He could not risk having them report to the emperor that he had released a revolutionary, especially one who made himself out to be a king in opposition to Caesar. It's interesting that something similar had already occurred in the history of Israel. The government back then was a theocracy. That is, Israel was ruled by God directly through men such as Moses, the many judges, and prophet-like figures such as Samuel. This was God's design, and it was great for Israel. However, the day came when Samuel had grown old. The people looked at the nations around them and felt cheated because they had earthly kings, and Israel did not. They therefore said to Samuel, Give us a king to lead us like the other nations. We are told that the request displeased Samuel and the Lord. However, when Samuel asked God what he should do, the Lord replied, Listen to all that the people are saying, for it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Someone has said that human beings never learn anything from history except that they never learn anything from history. And that is true in this case. For apparently nothing was learned from the early rejection of Jehovah's rightful and blessed rule. Earlier they had rejected Jehovah. Now here they are rejecting Jehovah's Son. The result of that? Throughout history, the nation of Israel has undergone unparalleled pain and suffering. Why? Well, in 1 Samuel 8, we see the Jews rejecting the Father as they beg Samuel for a king to rule over them. Here in John 19, we see them refusing the Son when they say we have no king but Caesar. And finally, in Acts chapter 7, before he is stoned, Jesus levels this charge against them by saying, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised people in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. So we have rejecting the Father in the Old Testament, refusing the Son in the Gospels, and resisting the Spirit in the book of Acts. All those things together cause the collapse of Israel. The good news is God is faithful. 
The message of Romans chapter 9 through 11 is that even though the Israel has refused the Son, rejected the Father, and resisted the Spirit of God, God will keep his promises to her. I don't know about you, but I've blown it enough in my Christian life that I am very thankful that he is a covenant-keeping God. Paul's dilemma expressed in this question, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called to Christ is the same one facing everyone in the room this morning. And there are only two alternatives. They are to stand with his rejectors and crucifiers and then face eternal damnation or to acknowledge him as Lord and Savior and be saved. There is no third choice. And Pilate's futile attempts to evade the issue reveals clearly that there is no middle ground. For as Jesus declared, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Pilate had to choose Caesar or Jesus, the kingdoms of earth or the kingdom of heaven, power or truth. Pilate failed to do the right thing, not because he didn't know what to do. He did, but because he feared to have it suggested that he was not Caesar's friend. Today, we could say, or a friend of the world. What a tragic irony. He wanted so much to be a friend of Caesar. But in reality, he was not Caesar's friend. He barely knew Caesar. And what is even more significant, Caesar was not his friend at all. The pressure of the world, though, proved too great for Pilate that day. And as is true for most politicians, public popularity trumped personal integrity. When forced to choose, he elected to trust in power and to serve the kingdoms of this world. Without another word, he moved to the official place of judgment called the Bema or the Gabbatha. This was a raised platform from which official decrees were read, including verdicts and sentences in criminal trials. So here Pop fine decided to just appease the Jewish authorities by saying, Behold your king. And the mob shouted back his choice. We have no king but Caesar. And with that, they all sided with the kingdoms of this world. Pilate had to choose between what was right and what the world wanted. And when the issue was finally clearly defined, he did not hesitate to choose the world and its rewards. Even though the uniqueness of Jesus is verified by the fact that Pilate went on record more than once saying, I find no fault in him. And that's a finding that has never been disputed by historian or cynic. Even more sad. Did you know that according to many historical records, Pilate himself committed suicide not long after this? So what am I saying to us all this morning? The familiar hymn, When I Survey the Wonders Cross, helps us realize afresh the price that Jesus paid for us. But we must not confuse religious romanticism with true spiritual emotion. What I mean is, it is one thing to shed tears during a church service, 
and quite something else to sacrifice, suffer, and serve after that meeting has ended. We cannot just merely contemplate the cross. We must carry it. So who or what are we going to choose to follow this morning? We had better choose the only one who has the power over life and death and eternity, regardless of any personal peril they may bring to us. I'd like to close the story of one man who did just that. To live before the audience of one makes a truly demonstrable difference. The character and life of the great 19th century Christian soldier, General Gordon, is a striking example. In his book on the recapture of the Sudan, Winston Churchill described General Gordon as a man careless alike of the frowns of men or the smiles of women, of life or comfort, wealth or fame. But these next words came from Jordan himself. He said, the more one sees of life, the more one feels in order to keep from shipwreck the necessity of steering by the polar star to God alone and never pay attention to the favors or smiles of men. If God smiles on you, neither the smile or frown of man can affect you. General Gordon was eventually abandoned and left to die in a siege because of the moral cowardice of Prime Minister William Gladstone and his cabinet in London. And his end at the hand of the Mahdi and his fanatical followers is legendary. But his strength was equally legendary throughout his entire life. Once, the cruel king John of Abyssinia, in an earlier incident, once snarled at him, Don't you know, General Gordon, that I could kill you on the spot if I liked? Kind of sounds like what we just read about Jesus and Pilate, doesn't it? Gordon replied, I am perfectly well aware of it, your majesty. Do so at once, if it is your royal pleasure, I am ready. What, said the king, ready to be killed? Certainly, I'm always ready to die. The perplexed king then said, Then my power has no terrors over you? Gordon answered, None whatsoever. And the king left him amazed. So, Lord, I pray that you would infuse unto us each that kind of confidence in you. Like you did with Pilate this morning, you set a choice before us. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. That I set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live. I pray that we would not be tantalized by the trinkets of this world, but instead mesmerized by your beauty and your holiness. We ask this in the name of our soon coming King. Amen. This being the first Sunday of the month, we'll be having communion.